A hundred years after his death in November 2018 at the age of 95, what will people remember about the man born Stanley Lieber, but maybe better known as Stan Lee? Hopefully people who read our books will be like the, you know, the Gnostic monks who are like, oh, we have the real story. We've seen the truth. Wow. I mean, literally in a hundred years, I think people will think of Stan as this kind of perplexing character who shows up in the cameos in, in those old-time Marvel movies they'll be watching. <laughs> I'm Charlie Meyerson. Our guests on this edition of the Chicago Public Square podcast are not one, but two biographers of the man known around the world as the face of Marvel Comics. Abraham Reisman, a journalist who writes about arts and culture for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and mainly New York Magazine and its arts and culture site, Vulture, and who's the author of a new book, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. He also grew up just a few blocks from my home in Oak Park, Illinois, just outside Chicago. And so you see, that's why this is a Chicago Public Square podcast. And Danny Fingeroth, a longtime writer and editor at Marvel who knew and worked with Stan Lee for more than four decades, but now a pop culture critic and historian whose 2019 book, A Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stan Lee, is, as we record this, newly out in paperback. Full disclosure, Danny lists me in his book acknowledgments for a reason that is not entirely clear to me. Your biographies of Stan Lee, gentlemen, have a lot in common, but they're also, in many ways, different. For one thing, Danny, you knew Stan for years. How has that affected your telling of his story? You know, uh, I wouldn't necessarily be the one to uh, to judge that, but it's funny. I knew Stan for a long time. I did a lot of public events with him. I worked uh, with him at Marvel at, and at other companies. But I can't claim that I was especially close with him. You know, I, we had a professional relationship. Um, I think he had uh, reasonably uh, high regard for me. But I can't, you know, I, 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 I think it benefited me for the biography because have, coming from the comic book business, I kind of know how the sausage is made and I kind of can was able to kind of relate experiences I had as a writer and editor to, you know, in some degree to, to Stan's life and career. But I was, you know, I, I was one of thousands of people that he interacted with in his 70 plus year career. Um, so, you know, I, I think it gave me some insights and I think, I was able to maintain uh, a certain degree of objectivity writing the book. Abraham, how do you think your book might have changed if you had had access to Stanley? You know, I have no idea. Uh, it's uh, It would maybe be a very different book, but I don't think it would be because I um, I approached whatever Stan said uh, to others, you know, uh, which, you know, is, is the bulk of uh, the Stan quotes that I have in the book. With a certain degree of skepticism, um, as well anybody should with any biographical subject because often the least reliable accounts of a person's life come from that person themselves, not necessarily because they're lying but just because you have the subjective experience of being the person. So 
I wish I'd had opportunities to have the uh, really interesting interviews that Danny had with um, Stan. I mean, I often found myself very jealous while I was reading his book of uh, how much he'd gotten out of Stan. And a lot of that really informed the narrative in my own book. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I don't know how much it would have changed, but um, I'm certainly grateful for the work that Danny did. You've, oh. you've read one another's books. Um, I read both of them. Um, how, uh, how do you perceive your takes on Stan Lee to be different? Did, you know, ways in which you, you um, uh, had different conclusions or ways in which one of you revealed things that the other didn't know? Uh, Danny? Well, I think, um, and thank you, Abraham. I appreciate uh, uh, your kind words about about my book. You know, I did, uh, after knowing Stan for so many years and interviewing him for different projects, I, I did feel like for the, um, you know, the book um, is unauthorized, um, although I spoke to tons and tons of people. And uh, Stan at first told me, he said, well, good luck with the book, but I'm not going to be interviewed for it. <laughs> and he ended up, and he then ended up doing two very lengthy interviews for it. And I thought by that point, after having interviewed him in private, in public, I'd finally learned how to um, how to approach him uh, and get beyond kind of the boilerplate stories and get beyond the things he'd repeated uh, a million times, you know. And and yet I still got him about a year and a half, two years before. He died, and 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 so his mind was very clear, even even if his energy was was uneven. So I mean, uh, so the question is, how is mine different? Was that uh, well, yeah, you know, you know, I think I think having I been, guys, I want you guys to fight. Actually, is what I. Yeah. Oh okay. no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you get along. You you come right. to the wrong wrong that's show. Right. If you're looking for that. That's right. And I've got my lawyer right here out of the. Yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. he'll, he'll, let, he'll let me know if I say the wrong thing. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. You know, I, I, I feel I was I feel having been an insider in the comic book business, um, I felt that I was um, able to I don't want to say forgiving, you know, this, you know, I was able to lay out what Stan did and didn't do and things he said and didn't say. And uh, and I wanted to let the reader kind of be able to make up their own mind. I didn't I didn't want to direct them. My favorite reviews or comments on the book have been from people who don't who didn't like Stan or didn't trust him or who or who felt he was a bullshit artist, but who said, "We th I thought you gave uh, a, a fair uh, a summary of the guy's life." And, and I just want to pop in to say I really thank Danny for a comment he made. We. Um, when I first uh, got approached about writing the book, um, I reached out to Danny and I said, is there any chance I could sort of pick your brain because you're somebody who knows a lot about Stan? Um, and he wrote back and very politely said, I told you a long time ago that I am writing a Stan biography, so I can't talk to you for that. And I, that was not the thing that I appreciated. He, he, um, we had uh, lunch briefly and Danny made a great point about Stan, which is, um, as uh, somebody who works in the comics industry, uh, that being Danny and not me, um, it's important 
important to keep in perspective that uh, there were people who, whatever Stan's flaws, there were people who worked in the comics industry in positions similar to his who were a million times more vicious or abusive than he ever was. And that was something that was important for me to hear, uh, keeping in perspective what the holistic vision of the industry was. So I thank him for that. Abraham, I know you dug deep uh, because in your research you came across uh, a cassette that I sent Stanley back in 1975, a recording <laughs> of an obsequious interview I did with him when I was a college student. Finally, I ask Smile and Stan, as Marvel fans call him, what he thinks of the current state of the comics art. Comics are now being taken somewhat seriously by people above the age of 14. Yes, I, I found that while I was at the Stanley Archives in, in Laramie, Wyoming. Tell us about your adventures in the Stanley Archives at the University of Wyoming. Well, you know, Danny beat me to it. He he did, he had his adventures prior to me, and uh, but I, I was blown away by a the sheer quantity of stuff that's there i mean it's about it's something like 194 boxes it's it's somewhere just shy of 200 and um what i think most surprised me was the amount of um uh, record. You know, you mentioned the cassette tape. I was not prepared for how many recordings would be in there, both video and audio. I assumed it was going to be mostly documentation because that's sort of the easiest thing to send for an archive. Um, but you know, they had VHS tapes of the of the Lee family home movies in there, and um, and any number of other sort of private recordings and personal documents. And I I found it. Overwhelming, gratifying, and occasionally perplexing as to why something might have been left there. But um, you know, I'm not going to complain. The more, the more, the merrier. But uh, it was uh, it was a pretty fascinating experience, and I'm forever indebted to my research assistant because boy, there was a lot of stuff to scan. Okay, Danny, you beat Abraham there. Uh, what was your adventure at the University of Wyoming like? That archive is incredible. I mean, I beat Abraham there. By the same token, he went. Uh, several years later, so there was a lot more material. You and also a guy named J.L. Mast, who's a French artist who's doing a graphic novel about, about Stan and Martin, They've both done amazing research. The archive is astonishing because of all the material. And, you know, Stan actually lost a lot of recorded material in a fire in his studio in the 80s. So imagine what, what would have been there. What I found amazing was... Um, that it didn't seem like anything was redacted. There was a lot of stuff that didn't make Stan look so good, you know? I mean, there didn't Absolutely. seem to be anything censored. Like what? What, what might you have expected to be censored that, that was not censored? Credit card information. There's credit card information there, and... His whole family social security number. No, <laughs> <Yeah>, it's crazy. <laughs> but I mean, but stuff, just articles, critical articles, um, you know, nasty letters. Um, the wacky thing was, though, of course, you know, not unlike my own files, there would be like, you know, there'd be a letter from the president of the United States and then a letter in crayon from a kid in the same. You know, I mean, there would just be here's a letter from Oliver Stone and here's a letter from Stan asking to open a charge account at the local coffee shop around the corner from Marvel. You know, yeah. when he was like a high level executive going, you know, I mean, I think I told you something about the nickel and dime nature of the comic book business in those days <laughs> that the that the that the president and publisher of the company is is signing the letter to the new tops deli saying, can we please open a charge account? I mean, yeah, there was just stuff that 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 was a little embarrassing, I think, to stand. 
you mentioned Martin, uh, and yeah, I think we I'll... should explain for the ah. uninitiated who Martin <laughs> was. And this kind of goes to the heart of Abraham's book, really, which is more so, I think, than yours, sort of a family history of Stan Lee and Marvel Comics. So tell us, you know, in, in broad strokes, how his family, how his ancestry affected who he was and what Marvel Comics became. You know, the thing that really fascinated me almost more than anything else during the course of my research was looking into Stan's family, not to try and find, you know, scandal and whatever, um, but looking into his ancestry, especially his parents' experiences in uh, Eastern Romania um, growing up uh, before they came to the United States, I think informed a lot of my understanding of who Stan became. You always run the risk of turning into too much of an armchair psychoanalyst, but you know, the more I learned about Stan's, especially relationship with his father, the more I started to understand, or at least have some theories about uh, how he constructed the persona and why he constructed that persona. By an amazing coincidence, I now live in Washington Heights in Upper Manhattan, where Stan grew up. And so in some odd way, I mean, he's a little more gentrified in parts now, you know, um, but I mean, the, uh, a big thing that happened here recently was they tore down one of the classic movie palaces, the RKO Coliseum, mm. which, which, you know, which, uh, you know, you know that Stan was a movie nut like every kid. And he lived in this neighborhood where there were like uh, eight or eight or nine of those old school movie palaces, which really informed a lot of his sensibilities So growing up in poverty with these parents constantly arguing over money and, 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 and who really didn't seem to necessarily be that fond of each other, you know, um, and here's Stan. So this Martin who we spoke of was Martin Goodman, who was Stan's cousin by marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, um, and yeah, and the story of Marvel, like the story of, 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 DC comics and Harvey comics, they are all these dynasty. They're all these family soap operas. Um, you know, I was just involved recently. I, I was, um, because I'm a comics historian, I was helping out and being interviewed by one of the descendants of the Harvey family making a documentary. Which and I mean, I mean, for the uninitiated, yeah. Harvey comics, publishers of Casper, the friendly ghost and Wendy, the good little witch and <laughs> Dumbo and uh, hot stuff. Other hard hitting yeah. crime yeah. narratives. But they, and, but, and some superhero stuff too. And the superhero uh, stuff yeah. and some of the, and some of like the most extreme horror stuff in the 50s yeah. and 50s. But all, so, so Marvel, you know, uh, which had been called Timely and then Atlas was another one of those. And so the good news and bad news for Stan was that he was related to the owner. I mean, it mm-hmm. it got him in there, but his relationship with Martin Goodman, the publisher, was so complicated, um, you know, that, I mean, it ensured Stan, you know, the good news and the bad news, it ensured that Stan would never be fired, you know, but it's sort of it was this kind of um, velvet uh, line trap where uh, and the relationship between him and Martin and, of course, a uh, very complicated relationship with his brother, Larry. Um, it, it's it's, you know, and, and half you know, Martin's name was Goodman. And half, even when I came there in the 70s, there was still some remnant of, you know, of, of many of the people there being named Goodman. There were sides of Stan that I, even from reading about and interacting with people who knew him very well, um, I don't think people 
saw outside of even just his immediate family. I mean, um, I, I remember talking to Larry Lieber, his brother, uh, early on in my research process, and I, I put this in the introduction to the book. I, I he said, without even me asking, he started pose this question to himself. He said, "Who who was he? You know, what was he?" And then he answers his own question. He says, "It depends on who you talk to at what time," and that's not necessarily a personality flaw to have different modes for different people. But, um, you know, there were stark contrasts between the way he'd talk in private and the way he'd talk in public. And when I say in private, you know, in different audiences in private, I, you know, it's, it's a hard question to answer succinctly, but there were a lot of stands. I never got a sense that Stan had a temper does either of you have reason to believe otherwise? Stan had a temper, but he didn't hold grudges. And the temp- so from what I've heard and from what I experienced a, a couple of times, he could get angry, but then he'd forget about it. You know, it wouldn't, mm. if you did something he didn't like, you know, he would maybe say something snappy or, 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 you know, I mean, look, the most famous one I think is, uh, I think, you know, in the early 60s, a writer and editor uh, went on to become a legend in his own right, just recently passed away, Denny O'Neill. He uh, was something of a, a hippie in the 60s, and uh, he was working as an assistant editor and a writer at Marvel, and he had like a small button on that said legalized pot. Stan just like literally ripped it off his shirt and said, don't ever wear that Again, and then, and then he later apologized. But I think for Stan, it was a holdover from the fifties when Frederick Wortham and other and other anti comics crusaders uh, saw everything in comics as corrupting uh, children and leading to juvenile delinquency. So, you know, Stan, you know, ripped that off him, um, and then uh, Denny. Uh, Denny says he was fired, and I'm sure he was at some point later on. Stan has always gave one of a, one of those, um, I don't know how we let you go, and they became friends, and Stan wrote forwards to Denny's books. And so, so I think Stan could react in the moment. He could snap at somebody, um, and then he would just, you know, he, he didn't seem to hold a grudge, at least not in that sense. Abraham? He, he had a temper in, uh, well, let me, let me say this. I, I, in one of the more bizarre moments over the course of the research for this book, um, that's not worth in the context of this interview getting to all the details of how it came about. I heard some recordings of Stan uh, at home in his latter years. Now I don't know how representative they are because when you're 94, 95, you're you know less inhibited sometimes and maybe not thinking straight. But it was very alarming to hear because even if you take away the content of what he's saying, you hear him yelling a lot. He's very angry and he swears a lot. And again, that may just be he was getting older and things changed for him and his brain, whatever. It happens to a lot of us. But it it did demonstrate that he was at least capable of having a, a real temper when it came to certain people you know, often people in his family, but, um, that was that, that I, he never really showed that in public as, as Danny points out, he was not somebody who was known for being a raging tyrant, um, at, uh, when he was, you know, running things at Marvel, which 
is notable because there were a lot of raging tyrants in comics. There were. I mean, it, there were a lot of people who were really bad bosses who could be really abusive, and that, that wasn't Stan for the most part. Danny, in your decades working with Stan and working with Marvel Comics, how did Stan's standing with the staff evolve? The perception of Stan Lee change? Wow. Um, you know, by the time I got there, he was often traveling, and then soon after he moved to California. I, th- I think we held him in, uh, you know... Let me put it this way: I'm kind of a, a I'm kind of a cynical person about human nature in general. You know, <laughs> um, I myself come from a similar background to Stan and from Will Eisner. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons those guys are so fascinating to me. Abraham, I think you do too, although a little, you know, you're uh, next generation. But, but so Stan, um, how did I think we all? I think we idolized him. I think we really. So what? Because I'm a cynical person by nature, if I heard some bad thing about Stan, I go, "Yeah, but you know, he still could be a whole lot worse." I, I know there were some people who came into the business who were, I think, maybe a little more starry-eyed, who I think were disillusioned um, by some of the reality of, of the business. But yeah, I don't. I mean, I noticed saying those. There were those years in the wilderness where Stan was in Hollywood trying to sell stuff, and nobody would buy it. And and I think uh, the outside world looked at that as, oh, isn't that sad that Stan is forced to do that? And you know, nobody will will look at these ridiculous Marvel characters. You know, I mean, I I would bet, looking back, sort of on my research and looking at, at my book and and Abraham's, I bet there are people who were Stan's peers who might have thought he was, you know, less than, than, than appeared to be, you know, who might go, oh, who's that picture that we knew when he was, you know, 19 years old sure. and bossing us around. But I, th- I think it took a while, you know, maybe the past 10 years where people of my generation could look at it and go, oh, okay, so these stories we've been reading are part truth, part fiction, and we have to read 20 different versions to get what might have really happened. You know, I mean, Stan's reputation changed a lot over the years uh, within the comics industry. Um, Outside the comics industry, his reputation in the past, you know, a a couple of decades has skyrocketed. His stock is is very uh, valuable, you know, especially once he started making all the famous cameos and all these mega successful movies. The idea of Stan became uh, extremely lucrative and beloved. Um, But over the course of his time working in the comics industry and then working adjacent to the comics industry – there were people who started to get more and more disillusioned about him. I mean, you look at, for example, the magazine, The Comics Journal, um, which uh, kind of had a, you know, holy war against Stan in the 80s and 90s. Some of it justified, some of it maybe a little over the top. Um, but that was that was a big deal. I mean, once you had people like, you know, comics icons like Steve Gerber or obviously Jack Kirby, 
um, his his collaborator who who had a lot of problems with him. Once you had these people talking in public in the eighties about Stan's failings or their their perceptions of Stan's failings, it really changed a lot um, for people in the industry. There was a, a greater degree of sort of you know, saying, hey, you heard about Stan? He's not really talking about what he's really talking about. I mean, I remember growing up in the late 90s, early aughts, being at a comic shop and just for the first time having somebody who worked behind the counter be like, hey, you want to know the real truth about Stan Lee? And like that kind of... I'm sure that guy knew. Oh, he knew everything. Yeah, he was <laughs> he was in the room where it happened. But, you know, um, but the point is by the time I was coming up in that era, this was sort of word of mouth. I mean, there there wasn't really anything written about uh, other than things in the comics journal um, about Stan's, you know, shortcomings or or mis- misconceptions or whatever, but um, through the people of the comics world, you could hear about stuff. And then, of course, now it's it's a lot more complicated. You know, one of the seemingly never-ending battles among comics aficionados is is whether Stan Lee gets too much credit. Oh, uh, geez, we're going to do this one. <laughs> yeah, I think we. I don't think we can do the show without doing this one. You know, <laughs> how much credit does he deserve for you know all of those characters and so many of those? Oh concepts? man. And forty-three point two percent. Never, yeah, yeah exactly. never-ending battle. Right, right, Ab- right. Abraham tackled this one first. <laughs> well, it's it's really hard to say. I mean, there when it comes to the um, creations uh, in terms of characters, we'll probably never know the degree to which um, Stan contributed, or Jack Kirby contributed, or in some cases Steve Ditko or John Romita Sr. Um, We'll never know, uh, you know, Danny makes a good joke there. We're never going to know the exact percentage of who created what. Um, and in fact, you really run the risk of going, well, it was probably a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, when in fact both Stan and, and Jack really maintained that it was pretty much entirely one or the other. So you never know. But what I will say in Stan's, in the, the plus column for Stan is you you, you really can't Debate unless Danny has counter arguments. I've heard uh, that I haven't heard, but uh, you can't debate that Stan came up with the idea of the interconnected, shared continuity Marvel universe. He was the editor. He was the one overseeing all these titles. He was the one seeing that they could interact and that there could be this sort of interwoven tapestry of all of these individual characters and storylines adding up to this mega storyline that continues to this day. I mean, I remember while doing the research thinking, well, I should find out whether that was, you know, did Jack Kirby have an alternative explanation of that? So I talked to a couple of people who had worked with him as two assistants, Steve Sherman and, and Mark Evanier, and, um, their consensus was, if anything, Jack hated the shared continuity because it meant he had to bother with other people's stories when he was already busy enough working on his own and trying to come up with his big ideas. So we really do have to give Stan credit for the idea of the Marvel Universe as a unified concept, which has turned out to be a momentous idea for not just comics, but for popular culture in general, especially with the advent of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So we'll never know the exact level of contribution but when it comes to that I'm pretty confident in saying that was Stan's that was Stan's accomplishment Danny people who love Stan and people who hate Stan don't describe a different person it's a a lot of it is chemistry a lot of it is people look Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby were geniuses 
we should clarify, uh, just for the uninitiated, Steve Ditko, among other things, co-creator with yeah, Stan Lee Spider- of Spider-Man, Jack Kirby, Fantastic Four, The Hulk. So, I mean, these guys were geniuses. They didn't have long-term, you know, I mean, the Kirby worked with Joe Simon, and even now you look at some of the histories of the interviews, and there's not agreement on who did what in the Simon and Kirby uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. So these guys were geniuses who were going to do their own thing. They were going to bring their magic to different places. And, you know, I mean, they they had a – they and, and Stan had a big ego too, and they all did. So they, they came together. They had what I – I mean, I see my book in a lot of ways as kind of a love story about – Lee and Kirby and Lee and Ditko and because those guys ended up hating him in a way you can only hate somebody who you're in love with. I mean, it who just disappoints you col- colossally. I, I, you know, I mean, it's also a love story about Stan and, and Joan, but I think it's more a love story of, of, of Stan and, and, and the artists. And so a lot of people, I mean, it's funny. I was just uh, reading Abraham. I think you had found, um, uh, a note that Will Eisner wrote to. Uh, to yeah, yeah. Him. I just I was going through the old documents and found this nice note. Yeah. Again, you know, footnote here. Will Eisner, it, it celebrated artist, comics uh, most prized awards, and named the Eisner Awards after him. So please go ahead now. You know, there's a lot of people who I've come. You know, a lot of my books have been on history. I wrote a book about Jews and superheroes, um, in which I interviewed a lot of Stan's peers. It's interesting. A lot of people worked with Stan for a long time and then got the hell out of there, but maintained. And I'd say got the hell out of there after 10 years. Al Jaffe, famous for Mad Magazine, Snappy Answers, mm-hmm. and Folden, loved Stan, worked with him for 10 years, then got out and established his, his own career. Uh, Jerry Robinson, uh, who created the Joker or co-created the, that's another one of those big uh, arguments. But Jerry, very instrumental in in Batman, you know, loves Stan, all these people, but a lot of them real, I think they must have realized, I love this guy, but this town ain't big enough for the two of us. I'm getting out. And so, and so Will Eisner writes this wonderful note to Stan. I guess Stan must have sent him a, a, a happy birthday thing on, like, on a milestone birthday, and and so I think the I think the question you almost have to ask is what took so long for Kirby and Ditko to leave? You know, what was it about their relationship with Stan that was so enmeshing that they because Ditko ended up going to Carlton Comics that paid half. You know, if 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 he was leaving Marvel because he didn't think he was being paid fairly, well, he went to Carlton where they literally paid him half the amount that he was getting. You know, I have to reveal my own personal prejudices here. You know, I am more of a reader than a than a viewer of artwork when I when I come to comics, and and so I I want to ask each of you, and I'll, and I'll start with you, Danny. What do you make of Stan Lee's actual writing, and I guess plotting ability? Well, you see, I think I think people stand off and get stand with faint praise. People say, well, he wasn't that much of a writer, but what a great promoter he was, you know. Well, you know what? He was an incredible writer. He, you know, I mean, I'm looking out the window at Washington Heights. It's very pretty, but it's, you know, it's it's not the Upper East Side. It's not, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not uh, Westchester. It's, you know, Stan uh, was a working class kid. Um, with a lot of money problems, and um, 
And I think a lot of, I think he had mood issues. I think he, I think he, I think one of the things that kept him from going to Hollywood 20 years earlier was a certain depressive side that kept him in touch with what real people thought and felt. And so I think it went into his dialogue. I think it went into his storytelling. Was he this explosive cosmic genius that Jack Kirby was? Was Stan going to come up with Galactus on his own? Probably not. But was he able then to harness that? And 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 I think you know. And and people say, oh, he just dialogued Kirby's stories. I think there was more to it than that. I think there was a part of Stan that lived in Kirby's head where he. I mean, you hear stories of Kirby just er erasing or tearing up art, going, oh, Stan wouldn't like this. I'm not even going to hand it in. Mm -hmm. You know, so look, when it gets complicated, Stan was the owner's relative. He was the editor, the art director, and the writer. And he was the boss of this thing. I say he was the auteur, you know, which a lot of people won't agree with. They'll say, well, Kirby was the auteur. I think Stan was the auteur because he had the last word. And I think there was a sensitivity to him that he didn't like to expose to people in, in real life. You know, I, I remember going, he lived in a very fancy house in the Hollywood Hills. It's the classic house you see in the movies, um, you know, expensive art, literally Picasso's on the wall. Very, you know, he had that lifestyle. But the room that he worked in in his home had like this plain crappy paneling you know, that you'd find like in a basement in, in uh, you know, in Queens. I mean, it was the simplest, crappiest room with like, you know, I was there a long time ago. So it was like a dot matrix printer that printed out into a cardboard. So there was some part of him, I think, that held on to that hard luck kid from Washington Heights uh, that informed the writing. I think, you know, uh, you know, so, so I think he was a better writer than people given credit for. Certainly a lot of stuff over the years that was just batted out or ghosted by other people. Or, but I think especially that prime Marvel stuff, um, I, I think there's a real writer there. Your turn, Abraham. I don't see myself as primarily a critic uh, when it comes to the actual comics material. Um, I, if for no other reason than I have not read a huge portion of it because it's it's a voluminous uh, bibliography. I mean, the stuff Stan was was involved with uh, on one form or another uh, as a writer is it's just massive how much of that it, there is. So it's hard for me to say conclusively about his corpus of work. You know how good a writer was he? But I will say, um, you know, I contend that we have to be really careful about what we attribute to Stan as a writer. Whether or not it's good, you just have to be careful about what you attribute because due to the Marvel method, which I'm sure your listeners don't want to listen to us bore them about what the Marvel method was in detail, but in basic outline, um, Stan was not writing full scripts. He was, uh, before the comic was was drawn and everything, he was, he was um, either having, you know, story conferences where he would bat around ideas with uh, the writer-artist, uh, co-writer and artist, or he would, uh, by his own admission, sometimes the writer-artist would just come to him and say, I'm going to do this thing, and he'd say, sure, go ahead and do it. And then afterward, after the story had been plotted out and actually constructed, then Stan would do the dialogue and narration. And 
so it's hard to say like, oh, Stan came up with this, you know, this is this great story. It's Stan's because he was the writer. There were two writers on every story and you can argue about who the primary one was. But, um, you know, and again, you get into the weirdness of the word writer. Like if words are not immediately involved, does that count as writing? And I would contend that it does. But anyway, the, the one thing I think we can all agree on is Stan's verbiage, like his word choices were, and the way he constructed sentences was um, revolutionary. I mean, no, people had not written dialogue and narration like that. And on top of that, letters pages. People had not written letters pages quite that good and interactive before. And that stuff was enormously important in the success of Marvel. Super important. Spoke to me. I wrote and was lucky to have published several several letters. Uh, oh, you did? Oh, yeah. They're, they're, I have a big collection. I'll show you sometime when you're in Oak Park, Abraham. <laughs> Please. Um, <laughs> um, Stan's final days were, I think, by any measure, sad. What went wrong and why, Danny? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, for all that people like to say that he was ruthless and, you know, and used and stepped over people, you know, I, Stan, I think, perceived himself as being this kind of poor kid from Washington Heights in the Bronx, you know, Um and I think he'd like to surround himself with people he saw as being worldly and tough and smart and people who would who would look out for him and aggressively pursue his interests. You, you, you have to, you know, a thing that I did, you know, that that I that I got from from some time I did spend like with Stan and Joan over the years. Uh, at, at the San Diego con and, and, uh, and just to visit, having dinner with them, their perception, you know, is that anytime somebody new bought Marvel, the, the new owners first thought was, why are we paying this guy so much money? What's he done for us lately? Let's get rid of this Stan Lee guy. We don't need him. And they would immediately, that's when, and Joan, I mean, part of it was that his wife died about a year and a half before he did. And his wife was, and a few trusted business associates were, were as she called it, the bulldogs who protected him. So Stan saw himself, whether rightly or wrongly, as this this vulnerable figure who could be, uh, who was very disposable to his bosses. So he surrounded himself with people, what we call in Yiddish darkers, you know, with like mm. tough, tough guys, you know, people who would go out and, 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 and be scary on his behalf. And I think what ended up happening is that uh, some of those people kind of turned that on him. You know, they, I think, I think he trusted or allowed people into his inner circle who were fierce and were tough, but then ended up um, abusing him and, and exploiting him. And, I, and, and, you know, I think that's part of the, you know, that's the downside about living your, your protectors and, 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 uh, and your friends is that there's nobody left to really um, look out for your interests. Abraham, how would you summarize the last days of Stan Lee. 
I devote the whole last chapter, which is a lot of thousands of words, just to 2017 to 2018. Like, there are chapters in my book that cover a decade and a half, and then there's one that is just that set of months because it was extremely eventful. And we won't get into all the details here, but basically some combination of individuals who were around Stan were abusing and grifting him. It's hard to say exactly who was doing what because there are a lot of conflicting accounts. But even if we can't say exactly who the abusers were, we can see the evidence of the abuse. I mean, he he would release these weird video messages and there were weird lawsuits that he was allegedly, you know, part of, but there's dispute about whether he was even really aware of them or, or behind them. And it got very ugly. There, there, there were a lot of um, incidents and moments of great vulnerability for Stan. And unfortunately, you know, he died with a lot of conflict in the immediate rearview mirror. And, um, you know, whatever you think of Stan's flaws, um, nobody deserves to be the victim of elder abuse. Um, and um, it was a really rough, rough story that I'm, I'm being careful in talking about um, because you don't, you, there's a lot of very explosive material involved in that. And you know, the, the the weird thing, you know, because people knew that I, you know, for a couple of years, I was Stan's regular moderator at, at the Wizard World convention chain. And uh, and so people would see me with him in public, even though I didn't hang out with him before or after uh, those panels, you know, although, and, um, and they'd say, you know, does Stan really, you know, they would say, is it elder abuse? Is Stan being schlepped around to these conventions of his own volition? And I said, well, you know, uh, if from what you know of Stan Lee, even if all you know is his public persona, do you think he'd rather die at home alone in bed or in front of 10,000 people adoring him? You know, I mean, because I, I mean, I, I had that experience where there were panels I would do with him where I thought he was literally going to collapse before getting uh, going up on stage. You know, there's one particular one where he had a flu shot that he had a bad reaction to and he came a day late. And the guy is like clutching onto the banister. And then he goes on stage. Goes on stage. And, you know, and they said only going to be 20 minutes, not the usual 45. So we get to the we get to the 20 minute mark and I and I say, well, Stan, you know, they just explained, you know, that we're only doing 20 minutes. And uh, any last thing you want to say to the audience before we go? And he says to me, is God talking to you? Did he say we have to stop? I feel great. Let's keep going. And in fact, here he was in 2017 at what was sadly and accurately billed as his final appearance for a Chicago comics convention. Doing the same shtick. Thank you so much for everything. You mean that's it? I I got all booked up and stuff, hooked up just for this. this? So when you have a guy, and I've seen, you know, you've seen that all. I've seen that with elderly, not even, not elderly people in general, but certainly elderly celebrities. There's no business like show business. (laughs) Gentlemen, a hundred years after Stan Lee's death, what one thing do you think he will be best remembered for? I think he's going to be remembered as, um, you know, justifiably or not, people have filed away in their heads and the, you know, the historical record has filed away in itself that he's he was the genius behind Marvel Comics. And I think it's hard to um, accept nuance 
And I think people are probably a hundred years from now still going to be calling him the, the genius of Marvel comics and the creator of Marvel comics and the creator of the Marvel universe and all the characters. Um, and that, you know, not everybody, hopefully there will be people who read Danny's in my books and know that it's, it's more complicated than that. But I think this isn't so much a testament to Stan, although he was a very good salesman of himself, which is one of the reasons why the conventional wisdom is this, but it's also not to sound like too much of a cynic, but it's a flaw in human nature. We want there to be simple, you know, author authorship of the things we like, and we want there to be a singular figure who we can associate with some great creation. And, it's just it doesn't work that way nine times out of ten. You know, I, I success is uh, has a million parents, failures an orphan. You know, I mean, it's it's hard to exactly pin down who did what, um, but that doesn't stop people from just saying it was all this guy. So I imagine that'll still be prevalent. Hopefully, people who read our books will be like the you know the Gnostic monks who are like, oh, we have the real story. We've seen the truth. But I think mostly, I think people will probably have the same conventional wisdom as they have now. Danny? Wow. I mean, literally in a hundred years, I think people will think of Stan as this kind of perplexing character who shows up in the cameos in the Marvel, in, in those old time Marvel movies, they'll be watching, <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll be watching on their blenders, you know? I don't think he was Walt Disney. I don't think he achieved Walt Disney-ness. You know, although I'd be curious what a child is. If you ask a kid who's Walt Disney, if they would even know. So I think they will remember Iron Man and Spider-Man and, and, mm. and, 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 and the Hulk and, and the X-Men. I think, though, I think, you know, maybe he did too good a job at making the characters paramount. So I don't in a, in a hundred in 50 years, maybe there'll be people who, who will, you know, I, you know, this this might be getting very Talmudic here. In fifty years, maybe what Abraham said, I think would would probably be true. I think in a hundred, I think it's going to be more like uh, the characters will take uh, uh, yeah. pri- primacy over any one or two individual creators. I hope both of your books are uh, in print a hundred years from now. Our guests on this edition of the Chicago Public Square podcast have been Danny Fingeroth, author of A Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stan Lee. And he reads the audiobook too, available from audible.com. Oh, no kidding. I do, yes. It's true. And uh, and that's Abraham Reisman, author of True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. Interviewed on January 29th, 2021, I'm Charlie Meyerson. This is the Chicago Public Square podcast. Thanks for listening. You belong, you belong, you belong, you belong to the Merry Marvel Marching Society. March along, march along, march along to the song of the Merry Marvel Marching Society. If you growl, if you groan, and your score is merely zero, do not howl, do not moan. You can be a superhero marching right along through the fighting song of the Merry